I need to start off with an apology. I had notes for this talk. As recently as 10 minutes ago, I was sitting in a chair downstairs looking at them. But they somehow did not make it up here with me, and I can't go back and look for them. So I'm going to wing it. Um, the other caveat is uh, I am not myself a teacher of history or a student of history. As you heard, my PhDs are in different subjects altogether. Um, but when Robert asked me to speak at this, um, I um, said, well, I think I could fit on your program because the way we think about happiness is strongly determined by our historical development. And I think that's important for people to be aware of. Um, so what do I have in, in mind? If you start with economics, which is where I start with, economics thinks of itself as an ahistorical discipline. People are always more or less acting the same according to the same sets of incentives. And economics carries with it a strong idea about the nature of human happiness that, in fact, from my point of view, shoots through our entire culture. Okay. That's the first starting point. And, and the idea of happiness is it's essentially subjective. It's what, what you want. So the happiness is the satisfaction of your desires, preferably as many desires as you can. Uh, and the only thing that keeps you from getting as far up the ladder of happiness as you can possibly go is limitations that you confront into in terms of scarcity, both of time and of money. So if only I had more time, I could read more books, and I think reading books makes me happy. So, you know, or if only I had more money, I could go on more vacations and see more parts of the world, and that would make me happy. So the idea of happiness is essentially one of extension. Okay. Um, and behind that comes the idea that, well, if you want, everybody has different ideas about what more they want. Maybe more friends, maybe more time to read more books, maybe bigger houses, maybe more vacations, maybe more nicer dinners out. We can have, they can be material, they can be non-material. But we always think of it in terms of extension. Okay, and that sounds like it's nice and pluralistic. We all pursue our own different ideas of happiness. It's what you want or what you want or what you want. Um, but because what's constraining us from getting higher up our ladder of happiness is limitations of time and, and money, that means that what we really actively pursue is more time and more money. Okay. And so that's why economic progress, at least in the discipline of economics, but I think it saturates our culture, economic progress is always desirable because it frees up those constraints and lets you get happier. Okay. As I progress in my thinking about, the, and when I started off as an economist, that seemed right. But then as I moved into my life, it seemed not so right. Um, in particular, when I got a, my first job and my income doubled, I found that my happiness didn't double. In fact, it didn't really go up at all because happiness seems to be about something other than just kind of getting the next desire or the next desire. So God in his mercy kicked me, threw me off my horse. I converted unexpectedly to becoming a Catholic. I decided to go, and it seemed to me the path that God had more to say about happiness than the path to the ladder of economic growth. So I went out to study theology at Notre Dame. Um, and there, through reading Thomas Aquinas, who takes you back to Aristotle, you get to an idea that I think should be familiar to people involved in classical education, which is the more ancient understanding of happiness as a, as a perfection of being. Um, so what do I mean? Um, I'm thinking about an Aristotle, for example. So happiness for Aristotle is not a matter of extension or getting more of the things that you can have. True happiness is becoming a better version of yourself. John Paul II talks about the distinction between thinking of progress as a, a progress in what you can have versus progress in cultivation or depth of being. Um, so 
a fulfilling life is one where you try to become a good version of yourself. You cultivate the classic virtues, fortitude, temperance, justice, prudence. If you're Christian, hope, faith, and charity. Um, you try to develop your relationships with people. You try to order your life to the pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful. So it's got a more transcendent feel. And, and the project of finding happiness is sinking into that goodness as deeply as possible, but it's not a matter of extension. Um, my book deals a lot with how damaging our modern idea of happiness is. If you think about it as a matter of extension, there's never, ever enough. It leads to widespread anxiety. The idea that more is always desirable puts us into conflict with each other. It's what generates a lot of the economic just injustice that we see, and it puts a huge pressure on the environment because we always just want to push out that boundary more and more. Pope Francis in Laudato Si does an excellent job of diagnosing our underlying desire for more as being what's, what's damaging to our, our, our societies and, and to the world around us. So I have a normative bent by taking up the, the topic of happiness. I think the more ancient idea of happiness is more fulfilling, it's more balanced, um, and, and I want my students to see that this way of happiness is a better one, okay? Um, and that entails telling a little bit of story about um, the shift. How did we go from a world that understood happiness as being this fulfillment to one that sees it as this matter of extension? Um, so one of the key ideas that Aristotle has is because you're trying to pursue these higher goods, material wealth and time and things like that are valuable because they help you to do those things. But this is going to be the key point, and then I'm going to try to trace out how it goes wrong. Um, if I am an Aristotelian or a Thomist, and I have this idea that I'm going to try to be an excellent version of myself, living as a single professor, um, I'm going to figure out what kind of wealth I need to sustain that life. And because wealth is an instrumental good in support of these higher goods, my desire for the instrumental good is always measured by the ultimate aim that I have. The classic example of an instrumental good is medicine. Okay. Um, if I have a headache, the bottle says two aspirin is what I need to fix my headache, then I want two aspirin. And I would never ever think that ten aspirin would make me better off. Do you guys, and, and the idea is, is if we were actually in right relationship with wealth in the Aristotelian or Thomistic sense, we would view wealth the exact same way. I'm a professor with this kind of a life. In order to carry out my functions, I need $55,000 a year, period. And if I ever get a raise above that, that is abundance that I would want to share with, a, I have no need of it. Do you see how? Okay. Now, most of my students like to think, oh, I got that. I don't want, I don't, I don't want to be a billionaire. Right? I don't want to pursue wealth in an open-ended way. Uh, I have very good reasons why I want more money. And people always come and talk to me. It's like, well, I want to give my kids a good education. I want this. I want that. They have real ends for their instrumental good. Um, so I like to tell a parable because the parable is meant to show that each and every one of us really, truly has this disordered idea about wanting more of that instrumental good. Okay, so parable time. Um, you can imagine a family that I'm going to call the aardvarks. And, and the aardvarks have a higher good that they want to pursue, which is music. They feel like they have a calling to pursue the good of music. Okay. And they make a living as potters. They make pots and they sell them in order to make a living. So they have a family council and they say, we love music. What should we do? And they say, well, there's this beautiful grand piano that would just 
Wow, that would really make our music playing really good. That's what we want in order to become a musical family. And so they go and work hard, and they save their money. They sell their pots. They save their money. And after three long years, they finally buy the grand piano. They bring it in. It's beautiful. The kids take lessons. They play on the piano. They become excellent musicians. They order their lives around, and they still make pots to make a living, but they dial back on the pot making. They spend their extra time playing playing their piano. They have neighbors over for musical soirees. It's a lovely life. That's an Aristotelian picture of how wealth is ordered to a good life. Everybody good with that? Okay, three villages over, their cousins are also a musically inclined family. They're the warthogs. You can tell what I think of them by calling them warthogs. <laughs> the warthogs are a musical family. They have their family council. They say, hey, grand piano would be great. Let's, and, they're, and they're also potters. Let's make some pots, sell some pots, save some money, buy a grand piano. It's all the same. Three years later, grand piano shows up. They're ecstatic. Lovely grand piano. Play around with it a little bit, and they say, you know what? Schubert has those really beautiful trios with a cello and a violin and a piano. Let's go back to work and earn some more money and get a cello and a violin. So they spent another couple years at their pots, and they got the cello, and then they got the beautiful trio. And it's lovely. And they go, wow, you know, but there's this other music, jazz. Let's, let's, let's do some jazz. We need to get, you know, one of those big bass things and a clarinet and a saxophone and a horn. And uh, so then they go back to work with their... And, and then they, they get all that. Now their house is really crowded. And they need more space for all their instruments because they're tripping over them. So they go back to work and they get a bigger house. And you see where I'm going with this. They thought their lives were about music, but it was always about the money. And the difference is they had an open-ended idea of extension rather than sinking into the good that was the music itself. Okay. Almost all of us have that problem, and you can tell it that the simple diagnostic is this. You've never met an American that didn't want a 10% raise. And the reason they want the 10% raise is they have some next saxophone that they want to get. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so the idea is it, a lot would be better in our own souls, in our society, if we could go back to understanding the Aristotelian idea the aardvark way, where you get your piano and then you cultivate your actual life rather than letting it be all about making pots. Um, there's just three historical landmarks that I want to point out to you that I, what I use with my students to show them how we got from point A to point B. Um, first point I want to make is not one of those three points. It's that Aristotle and Plato and all the ancients who understood this they recognized the temptation to think of happiness as extension. They even, they even gave it a name, a vice, called pleonexia. Okay. If you read the politics, before Aristotle starts describing a good political order, he says, you know what, there's this thing called pleonexia. It comes in through markets and economic activity. Plato in the Republic, before Socrates starts launching on his big discussion of the just city, says we could have had a just city if only people sitting around didn't get this pleonexia thing going. Like, he's got the perfect city going, and then they just want to have, like, better figs and a comfortable couch, and then it just keeps going. And the next thing you know, you've got a really complicated problem getting justice. So the ancients knew that we are inclined to pleonexia. That's not news. That's not the shift. They always thought it was there. They just named it as a vice. They understood it was an obstacle to justice, to genuine human flourishing. So the first big shift that happened was Machiavelli. Um, Machiavelli's idea was, gosh, Aristotle and Plato, you've got all these nice political theories, but it's about people acting the way people do not act. 
Let's get real. Let's get pragmatic. Let's get realistic. It's the realistic turn. People as they actually are, are planexic. And so a good leader will take that into account, and by the way, is himself planexic, <laughs> and we'll just figure things out from there. Okay, Let's get real. Thomas Hobbes comes in a couple hundred years later, and he, and he, and he says, it's not even a matter of getting real. Maybe it's just the way things, not even just the way things are. Maybe it's the way things should be. Um, and I wish I had my quote, which I have, but he basically says, this idea of happiness as perfection is a mirage. Happiness is getting one thing, one desire satisfied and getting up the next day and satisfying another desire and another desire in a process that ceaseth not until death, right? One thing after another. So he deproblematizes pleonexia, basically says that's happiness just is. Go get as much as you can until you die. Um, okay. So out in the wake of Machiavellian Hobbes, the problem for thinking about human society is no longer can we try to inculcate virtue, try to build just societies, or so on. The problem becomes more um, how can you draw good social order out of a bunch of pleonexic people? Um, and so you get the idea that markets, for example, can take my desire to get more, uh, but in order for me to maximize my income or maximize my profits, probably the market through competition will force me to offer you pretty good products so that I can get your business. Um, I will work hard to make you things so that you will give me money so I can get more. And in the process, there will be a general creation of wealth. Um, this would be the main insight you get from an Adam Smith. And then the history of economics and political science ever since has been, okay, that works mostly, but not always, and how do we balance this out? And how can we structure our institutions so as to get relatively decent outcomes out of a bunch of pleonexic people? And they wouldn't use the term pleonexic, but people as they are who just want more as a natural state. The last thing I want to point out is Adam Smith, of all people, is a good resource that I use with my students to say, hey, we do not necessarily need to go down this road. Adam Smith does indeed say that it's probably best if you want to provision people with the materials that they need in life. Markets are a good way to do it. Um, if I'm a baker, I offer you some bread, you pay me money, and then I use the money to you, the butcher, to buy your meat. Uh, and that's a useful way to order our economic lives. Um, it's perfectly reasonable to think that I make my living in a way that's designed for me to sustain myself, to make money, um, but in a way that provides you with stuff. He, he's the guy who does that. But in his theory of moral sentiments, which is sadly neglected work, he has a much richer account of human nature than a modern economist would have. And he calls into question this pleonexia. Um, he clearly has an idea that a truly good life, a truly happy life, would be one that was more around cultivating virtue. His account of the virtue is not quite Aristotelian, but it would be about trying to find what's fitting or appropriate or, or comely, lovely, ways of interacting with people. And then, I think it's book two. He make, he's, got, he's developed his theory of moral sentiments about how we actually do care about other people, we care about our reputations, and, and our reputations play out in terms of treating others in a way that's it's lovely. Okay. Um, and he says, at the end of the day, we, it's really important for us to be uh, recognized for the good that we do, that that's an important component of human nature. And if you think about it, that's right. That we want to, the, the phrase that, Russ Roberts always uses, we want to be lovely 
and lovable. So we want to be, be admired or loved, but for actually being lovable. That's, that's the essence of happiness for him. And it's compatible, I think, with an Aristotelian take. And Smith says, the problem is there's only a few people who want to be lovable yeah, who want to be loved for being lovable, who want, who want that admiration because they've actually developed these beautiful characters. They really are good and gracious people. He says, most people want to be loved, full stop, and most people have this admiration, social attraction for people who are successful, who have a lot, a lot of money, a lot of status, a lot of power. And then he says, and this is the secret to all the toil and bustle, because he's in the incipient phases of capitalism. People are starting to scramble around looking for the next buck. And he says, for what purpose is all this toil and bustle? It's not because people want to have bigger houses or finer clothes. He says, at the end of the day, there's not a big difference in terms of day-to-day -day life between the great and the poor. They all have enough to eat. They have a place to sleep. They have enough to go out and have a good time. He says, the reason why we think the big house is more desirable than the small house is because if I have the big house, you guys all look at me and you think I'm awesome. It's for the social status of it. Um, and I think this is a real key and insight to think about a lot of our rest restless striving for more comes out of this uh, unceasing desire for more attention from others that comes through um, material gain. To me, that's a useful insight. First, because Smith, the father of economics, does not think material wealth is of itself a way, a path towards happiness, number one. Um, number two, he thinks, um, wish I had my notes. <laughs> so uh, he doesn't think wealth is a path to happiness. Um, and he thinks it can be a distraction. He offers actually a moral defense of capitalism on this basis that I think is for worthwhile for people to know because I think it helps us think about our modern situation a little bit better. He's writing out of a period where the path towards status and wealth was not through uh, building up a business and making a lot of money that way. It was rather by going to court and being a toady and sucking up to the guy so you could get a place in, in, in court. If anybody's seen the... Um, Man for all seasons, this would be exactly Richie Rich. Okay, he's, he's, he's writing about a Richie Rich world. And he says, in that world, the path towards status is not compatible with anything that's lovely. It's not compatible with anything admirable in the human character. Um, it's really quite disgraceful. And, he, and he's really even-tempered writer, but he gets a little hot on this. He's, he, he has some choice things to say about Louis the Sixteenth and people like that. Um, from his point of view, the beauty of capitalism, emergent capitalism, he was not using that term, but the beauty of the emerging cult commercial society in Scotland is that the path towards wealth for the bourgeois, the middle class, would be to start that business. So I start my dry cleaner store. And he says, well, what do you need to, ha what kind of person do you have to be to carry on this good business to earn that wealth? Well, I have to be honest. I have to work hard. I have to be creative. I have to um, be friendly with my customers. It would be helpful if I knew them while I'm provisioning them with beautiful mustard stain-free clothes, things like that. Um, it says the path towards wealth is also the path towards developing a fairly good um, character. There's something to that idea, but you should also notice how far we are from it in our world. Um, and I think it gives us a way to think about the way um, 
corporations and these large-scale economic activities end up suppressing the good beneficial aspects of markets and capitalism in favor of the idea that I just want to make a buck and however I can get it, I don't care how I do it. And I, I, will, I think I've gone too long. I have many examples of how this plays out in the world. Um, but the idea here is just to give resources to my students to help them see that there's better ways of thinking about happiness in a way that's in that takes into account where we are. We're at the end of Machiavelli, Hobbes, and all the rest. Um, but to try to point them back to a, a more rich and fulfilling way of approaching life. Thank you. <laughs>